The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you very much. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Doing well. Good. Thank you. Yep. Great by the way, you. if I may start off by asking everyone to pray. Continue praying for Father Baumberger. Father Paul Baumberger is, uh, has been ill for some time now, and uh, he is slowly improving, I hear. Uh, slowly and steadily. And, uh, um, but uh, he still has a ways to go. So please do keep him in your prayers. And also please uh, get into your prayers for uh, Monsieur Louis Saint Laurent. Mr. Saint Laurent had surgery for a a series of strokes, and I understand he's doing well. I asked everyone to pray for him last week, and uh, evidently everyone did because he came through very well. And there are a goodly number of other uh, good souls. Mr. Robert Gorey uh, needs our prayers, Mr. Hank Raska, and uh, Dr. David Hofrichter, all of them. Um, can certainly benefit from our prayers, so I ask you to please keep all in your prayers. And thank you for doing so. And there are many, many others too, God knows. Um, and he'll reward um, your charity in praying for them by not only blessing them, but also blessing you too. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, then, Father, we have a few items on the docket for tonight. Um, mm -hmm. the, the first one is in regards to uh, a recent program where we talked about the Catholic perspective on treatment of the elderly. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of our viewers wrote in with a follow-up question and, and asked if the, uh, the things you talked about in that video, would those apply uh, to elderly reprobate politicians, he, he terms them, uh, as we see in America today. He asked, Father, how can one respect them for how they are treating this country and the people they are elected to represent? Well, we certainly don't respect them for that, do we? You can't respect anyone for evil doing, right? Uh, the question is, uh, must we respect them in spite of the evil that they're doing? And uh, one, might, one might ask the same, I mean, um, about Satan himself. You know, someone might say, well, does Satan deserve any respect? After all, he's a fallen angel. And um, the fact is, um, no, okay. Uh, respect is a matter of love. He rejects love. He rejects God's love. Um, but one has to realize, nonetheless, that God created Lucifer and gave him certain natural perfections. And those natural perfections actually remain even in Lucifer. The angelic nature Lucifer can't destroy. He has no power to do so. Only the creator, creator could do that. Um, and um, so God preserves Lucifer in existence by an act of the of the divine will for the natural good that is there even though lucifer has uh, 
uh, not only uh, rejected his, his purpose, of course, which is to know and love and serve God, um, and to be happy with him in heaven, right? It's the angels, and we share that. Um, but uh, nonetheless, when God looks at the natural perfections, as St. Thomas Aquinas himself talks about these things, he talks about God's creation resembling God by way of vestige, by way of similitude, by way of image. He says, even the dirt under our feet represents uh, some perfections, some of the divine perfections, even as far as it has existence, um, by only a vestige. There's a vestige of the divine perfections in inanimate matter. <laughs> but then there's the similitude, as it were, even in... Uh, in uh, the the animal forms, the life forms, right? But the image of God is in man, his creation, and that is because of our intelligence and our will, intelligence to know what is true and will to love what is good. Yet actually, the combined force of the intelligence and the will to enable us to enjoy what is beautiful, there we have the transcendentals. Lucifer has rejected uh, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Uh, but nonetheless, he cannot, although he would, destroy his own nature if he could, all the works of God. He hates, and part of his torment is hell. In hell is still being, as it were, created by nature in the image of God to know what is true and love what is good. And he rebels against that and finds it revolting. Uh, one might say, well, Lucifer hates. What does he hate uh, most in hell? Actually, you'd have to say he hates himself, oddly enough. Uh, he hates whatever natural good is in him because it's there by the hand of the Creator. And he hates the works of God. So, uh, it's a, you know, you think about his pride, which led him to rise up and say he would be his own God, and how he actually detests himself now. Yes, he has to face the fact at every instant that whatever perfections are in him are the handiwork of God. And, uh, it drives him mad, <laughs> as it were. <coughs> now, getting back to your question, <laughs> okay, uh, should we respect others who are very uh, evil? Well, um, you see our Lord standing before Pilate, right? And our Lord showed him actually a, a certain amount of, uh, you, could you say our Lord showed him a certain amount of respect? Well, I think you could say, yes, our Lord did answer him very civilly and straight, in a straightforward way. And, um, and truthfully, clearly, he would have answered that way. And that's, there's respect in that. And when our Lord stood before the Sanhedrin, uh, did he show a certain respect there? Well, actually, I guess you'd have to say yes. I mean, he answered them honestly, <laughs> even though they did not respect him. <laughs> he himself was, to say the very least, civil to them. Uh, but the greatest respect that he showed them was telling them the truth, confronting them with the truth. And that's what we have to do with these elderly, reprobate politicians. The greatest respect we can show them 
is to confront them with the truth, exactly as our Lord did. Um, you know, one thing that we tend to overlook, and in fact, I wanted to talk about this during the upcoming men's and ladies' retreats in June, and I recommend those to our viewers, by the way, if they'd like to take part in those retreats at St. Thomas Aquinas uh, Campground retreats, Retreat Center. There are still openings, I believe. In fact, we've put up a new building <laughs> to accommodate and a greater comfort to those who come. Um, but one thing I wanted to talk about was the power of a certain kind of prayer. And that power uh, uh, is especially manifested in the prayer of forgiveness. It's the first prayer that our Lord uttered from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And um, so it is with us. I mean, in our own lives, we pray for various things. And conversions of loved ones and, you know, better jobs or for the sake of supporting the family better and so on. So we have all kinds of good reasons and good causes. But the prayer of sincere forgiveness to those who have wronged us and the sincere desire for their good and their salvation, to utter a prayer like that is very powerful before God because it, uh, well, anything that makes us resemble his own divine son is, a very, is very powerful, right? And so I would say it's a very serious mistake to uh, overlook that in our spiritual lives, the prayer of forgiveness and uh, a prayer for the genuine spiritual good of those who have injured us. That's how our Lord prayed for us on the cross, and that's what he's asking us to pray uh, in following his example. So we really, if we're going to start somewhere, it's, it's probably a good place to start. When the priests go and take care of those who are dying, one of the most important things the priest has to ask them is, do you carry a grudge against anyone? Is there anyone you hate? Is there anyone you want to see hurt, you know, to suffer loss? Uh, because it would give you satisfaction to see them not humbled, but humiliated. Is there, is there anyone you have that animus against, you know? Because that will stand against them when they themselves stand before the judgment seat of God. There's a reason why our Lord told, taught us to pray the prayer of the Pater Noster, the, uh, the, what they call the Lord's Prayer, mistakenly, the, uh, the Our Father. Uh, there's a reason why our Lord told us uh, to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, so we should take, take that to heart and definitely incorporate that into, idea into, our, uh, into our daily prayers, if not our every prayer. And uh, we should let that be sort of like the prayer background of everything we, uh, every time we approach God. Um, so that has to do with our elderly reprobate, um, uh, shall we say, uh, politicians, right? Who are like open enemies of our, of our Lord, open enemies of the church, open enemies of our faith, open enemies of Christ. Um, open enemies of our country. We should uh, pray the prayer of forgiveness for them, for their genuine spiritual good. 
<laughs> because that is the one thing that can accomplish the wonder of wonders, and that is their conversion. We can pray, oh God, you know, humble them, bring them down, smash them, you know, and and um, let, our, let our enemies be scattered and so on. And, you know, if we're moved by a genuine love for our Lord, because these people are his enemies, uh, that's one thing. But... Um, uh, that's not the the ultimate that we'd pray for. I mean, that's not what the ultimate that our Lord would pray for. Um, he may settle for that, as it were, not his designed will, but his resigned will, as they call it. But God wants not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and lived. And that is what our Lord prays for. So that's where we should pray, too. We should pray for the grace so that they will come to recognize the evil that they're doing, and sincerely repent of it, and do everything in their power to repair it. I mean, anything else is not really a solution. That's the only real solution there is. So that's what we should be praying for. Again, confronting them with the truth, and sincerely praying for their conversion, are, I'd say two main things that show genuine respect, even for the reprobate elderly. Enemies. Okay. That's great, Father. Thank you. Um, another topic that we had moving on, um, something that's been in the news recently is, uh, is modern-day Israel. And uh, we just recently, on May 14th, had the anniversary of the founding of uh, the modern state of Israel. This viewer says, The church has had a long history of saying the Jews will not ever have a homeland or state as a punishment for the murder of their Messiah. Um, this view also references uh, a, the first wave Zionist world leader, Theodore Herzl, uh, who apparently met with Pope St. Pius X and uh, asked him to recognize his plans to found the state of Israel. Pope St. Pius X said no because the Jews refused to accept Jesus Christ. The church cannot, could never recognize such a plan. Uh, then he says, John Paul II went on to give a, an official diplomatic recognition by the Vatican to the state of Israel. So, Father, can you comment on all of this? And uh, he asked, do the Palestinians have a right to their claim to land? Sure. sure. Well, um, there's been a dramatic change, obviously, that's come over um, the church or, uh, situation in the world. There's been a revolution in the Catholic Church revolution that had been carefully planned and executed by Christ's enemies, by the Church's enemies, for actually literally centuries. And that revolution uh, finally, uh, you might say, hit the, hit the streets, hit the Vatican uh, from 1962 to 1965, during, uh, which we know as Vatican II. Archbishop Vigano has written powerfully about Vatican II, even saying it cannot be rehabilitated, it has to be buried. But you see, you just can't bury it and make it go away. It is what it is, and the results of it are the, the new order, right? The new order, which is very much a part of the uh, Novus Ordo Seclorum, uh, the, the new order of the ages. This is exactly the Revolution en Pemperance, which the Freemasons were prescribing back in the early 1800s saying the, revelation, the revolution in the church is the permanent revolution. That is what they say they had to do. 
And uh, basically, Tom, what it comes down to, and, and uh, I mean, all of this is tied together. Uh, go back to the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita. Uh, that's the instruction given by Nubius, the head of the highest lodges of the, of the Freemasons in Italy, back in the early 1800s, giving directions to all the Italian Freemasons how to proceed to infiltrate the church. See, uh, Nubius, the Freemasonic head, probably possessed himself, um, kind of out outlined a plan to decatholicize the world. This is what their objective was. Decatholicize the world, mankind. Decatholicize mankind. But he said, in order to decatholicize de mankind, we have to decatholicize the Catholic Church. And he said, in order to decatholicize the Catholic Church, we have to decatholicize the Pope. And his prescription for decatholicizing a Pope was to decatholicize the clergy. And the way to decatholicize the clergy is to decatholicize the society, especially the family, in which vocations are nurtured. It was kind of interesting because uh, Nubius received letters of advice from his fellow Masons in Italy explaining how they thought this should be done. And they thought that it was kind of a, um, well, what we'd call a vicious circle between decatholicizing society and decatholicizing the clergy. Because it's true, the society, especially the family, would produce the future vocations. But then the future vocations who became priests would have an influence on the society in which they lived to try to Catholicize it. So they had to be simultaneously decatholicized, as it were. The society that produced the vocations, especially the family, and the, uh, the young men themselves who would go on to become the clergy. The thought was that from this decatholicized clergy, who are very worldly, you would have a decatholicized pope eventually rise, and he would decatholicize the church. And then the decatholicized church would decatholicize mankind. Now, uh, the advice that Nubius received from his advisors in the Freemasons, and among them, the Jews, uh, Jewish Freemasons, who were advising him on how to decatholicize the society. And the advice was corruption, especially sexual immorality especially sexual morality. Um, the prescription that they launched was completely corrupt women. One of them, one of, uh, one of the advisors who, who wrote to Anubius, I forget whether it was Vindex, the Avenger, or Piccolo Tigre, the little tiger. They went by these secret names, you know, code names. <coughs> um, I forget which one of them said, you know, I had to laugh when I saw this because in order to destroy the church, 
you'd have to destroy womanhood. You say you have to destroy woman. You have to corrupt womanhood. He said that's where we have to go. We have to make women uh, very vile. And when I read that, I thought, you know, I think he might have even might have even quoted the phrase "corruptio ultimi pessima." The corruption of the best is the worst corruption of all. If you can corrupt the woman, it was really like the the, the pinnacle of civilization and refinement, and basically the reason why men are no longer living in caves, right? And no sat no longer satisfied to live in caves. Um, then you you will have uh, a real force for evil in the world if you can corrupt the woman. See, this is how, how evil these people were in their thoughts. They thought you had to corrupt. So he said, "What we need is corruption or mass. We need we need corruption, uh, endless corruption, corruption, massive corruption of the entire society. That's what we need to work for." He said. And we do that in the fashions, we do that in the entertainment, you know. And this actually takes us actually, uh, also to the next step, because this set in motion a number of think tanks, you know, as to how to do this. Um, some in Italy and some were not in Italy. I mean, when you had the Freemasons of Italy laying out this plan during the eight, early 1800s, it wasn't going to end there. It was going to become let's say, spread and become a program for a number of other groups. Um, a man named uh, Antonio Gramsci, who was a revolutionary in Italy, adopted this plan, again, of the long march through the institutions to destroy the church, to corrupt society. So uh, he understood the need for this, and about the same time that he lived, he was an, an Italian prisoner, actually, I think he died at the age of 47 or something like that, um, he, um, there was a, a, a group of primarily, if not exclusively, Jewish psychiatrists, psychologists in uh, Frankfurt. Uh, they, they went to the, the Goethe Institute there, Goethe, uh, at Frankfurt. They called the Frankfurt Schule, the Frankfurt School. And uh, cultural Marxism is largely attributed to their thought. They had, a, they had a problem as Marxists. Well, all Marxists have a problem, right? But Marx was universally wrong. You know, he had all this analysis about the history of mankind and the whole process leading ultimately to some communist worker paradise. But in his predictions, certainly, everything proved wrong. Okay. <laughs> One of the most spectacular predictions Marx had <laughs> that proved absolutely wrong is that the nation was the mo that was the most heavily capitalist and the most heavily industri industrialized would be the first to fall by revolution. The workers would rise up and cast off their chains. So where did the Bolsheviks secede? In Russia. I mean, Russia was the most backward nation on the face of the earth at the time. <laughs> Hey, just a month before, Our Lady, Our Lady had told the children, actually, in, in July of that very year, in 1917, when the Bolsheviks took over, just in July of that year, Our Lady told the children that Russia would spread her errors throughout the world. That time, and not that the children knew much about Russia, but the idea of Russia spreading anything around the world, except maybe a virus, <laughs> you know, was kind of unthinkable. Russia couldn't... They, they were in terrible shape. Um... 
Uh, the Tsar abdicated. Uh, the Duma took over. They were trying to get out of the war. Uh, the Germans sent uh, the Bolsheviks in, led by and, uh, Lenin, to take Russia out of the war. What a disaster Russia was. So not only did not the most heavily industrialized and most uh, thoroughly capitalist nation fall to, to the Bolsheviks, to, to militant uh, communist Marxist atheism, but the most backward country fell. And then the next thing that failed was Marx predicted when the first country fell, all the other countries would fall like dominoes and the entire world would be engulfed in this conflagration of the workers of the world, workers of the world uniting and casting off their chains. It didn't happen. And uh, so Lenin and Stalin, with their common turn, were trying to export revolution. It wasn't happening. I mean, even the, even the year after, uh, a year or two after World War I ended, the, our doughboys came back and they were looking for jobs. And there was a lot of social unrest, you know, while we switched trying to assimilate, you know, hundreds of thousands, I guess, uh, anyway, of uh, young men who needed jobs. Um, there were, I don't know, in one year, about 1,200 strikes that swept the nation. But they were all instigated to start, start the revolution. It didn't happen. So the, the geniuses at the Frankfurt School, Adorno and uh, Horkheimer and the rest of them, were thinking, well, what happened? Why did this go wrong? You know, come on, the whole world is supposed to be engulfed in revolution. And guess what? Uh, it's not happening. What's the problem here? And they find out it was Christianity. They decided it was belief in Christ, especially the Catholic Church. So they decided that's what we have to get out of the way. We have to get that out of the way. It sounds like the restrainer mentioned in the, in the Bible. They recognize there's a restrainer that's holding this back. So they mapped out this plan of cultural Marxism to destroy the Christian culture in these nations. Now, in the Protestantized uh, countries of Europe, it had already been well underway for some time. Um, here in America, there were many, many converts, thousands and thousands of uh, people were becoming Catholics every year, baptized. There was one, I think, one parish in Chicago or something, had 3,000 converts or something in a year. There was an uh, enormous influx of uh, converts into the church. Uh, in the in the um, uh, you know middle more years, uh, so anyway, um, but the idea was to corrupt all of these Catholic institutions, and uh, again this harmonized with Gramsci's idea of the long march through the institutions, and basically, if I can boil it down again, I, I would say that there, it was all a matter of uh, well. You know, revolution, V-O-L, is where something turns. But V-E-R-S, version, means it basically turns upside down, in a sense. So there, they started with a program of, in a sense, diversion. I mean, way back in the time of the Freemasons uh, planning the corruption of, the, of mankind, they are talking about diversion through immoral entertainment. They wanted to use that. In French, divertissement. Is, I think it's a word for entertainment. It's, it's a diversion, you know, to kind of divert your mind from business at hand. And um, so they were going to start with this diversion, bringing these, these kind of soft, 
life of uh, just basically diversion. Make somebody lazy, get them away from the duties of a state in life, especially fathers, especially priests. But they would go from that in demoralizing the society from the diversion to a kind of um, subversion. They would go to a kind of subversion where they would begin to turn the idea of um, what's good and what's bad and make what's good kind of laughable and subject to mockery and what's bad very acceptable so that people wouldn't react against it anymore. As though there was almost an equivalence, you know? It's whatever floats your boat. And from diversion and subversion, they would go to the inversion, where they would actually flip the two, where now evil would be admired. It would be the new virtue, and good would be the new vice. For example, virginity would go from just being, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, whether you are virgin or not, you know, activity, sexual activity outside of marriage, well, it's not a big deal, right? You just accept it, it happens, everybody's doing it, so. But then you, the next step would be to get people to kind of look down at virginity and purity as though it's sort of crummy. And, you know, a profligacy and, uh, and immorality to kind of admire people for that. Uh, almost like people admired the, the so-called gods of Olympus because they were superhuman sinners. And boy, isn't that great? They can do this and get away with it, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but then the next step after diversion and inversion, uh, diversion and subversion and inversion is perversion. And perversion was basically the point of exalting vice, and punishing virtue, actually punishing virtue. And we're at that state now. We're at the stage where we exalt vice and we punish virtue. And uh, that's, that's the stage of perversion. So they had this idea how they were going to completely eradicate uh, Christianity from society such that... Uh, it eventually would be looked upon something that is simply have to be, it has to be purged from society altogether, right? Even as Voltaire said, even the memory of it has to go. That's what Nubius said back in the 1800s. He said, we've got to make Christianity disappear. That's our goal. That was the Voltaire's, he even said it. That was Voltaire's goal. That's our goal too. To have Christianity simply, the very memory of it disappear from the face of the earth. So this is the kind of thing we're dealing with here. How does it involve this? Well, I'm talking about what happened in the church. And how did we get from St. Pius X receiving Theodore Herzl, the great uh, purveyor of Zionism, right? And uh, uh, receiving him an audience and telling him, no, we cannot recognize the right of a people of Israel to have possession of Jerusalem and the Holy Land. We can't do that. Uh, in fact, I, I might be even a good idea to read that because I said, you know, I have, uh, I have 
Actually, Theodore Herzl's account of the audience, which is very uh, telling. Um, and um, why St. Pius X said we, as a Catholic, and especially as the leader, as the Supreme Pontiff, I cannot do this. And then to see John Paul II turn around and just completely you know, spurn that idea and embrace it. And it tells you the sea change that happened, the revolution that happened to the church, right? Um, but anyway, <laughs> let, let, let me read this. Uh, this is the, excuse me, Theodore Hetzel's uh, account of his audience with Pope Pius X in 1904. Um, well, I'll give you a little introduction here. On January 26, 1904, Theodore Herzl had an audience with Pope Pius X in the Vatican to seek his support for the Zionist effort to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. He recorded his account of the meeting in his diary. And the source for this is Raphael Petai, The Complete Diaries of Theodore Herzl. Translated by Harry Zone. Okay, this was published in 1960. So um, later on, he talks about a certain Count Lepay, and that is Count Bertolt Dominic Lepay, an Austrian papal portraitist whom Herzl had met in Venice. And he's the one who arranged the audience between Herzl and Pope Pius X. This is what we read, translated from Herzl's diary of that meeting. Yesterday, I was with the Pope. The route was already familiar since I had traversed it with Le Pay several times. Past the Swiss lackeys who looked like clerics and clerics who looked like lackeys, the papal officers and chamberlains. He, he already kind of breathed certain contempt, you know, <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> <laughs> I arrived 10 minutes ahead of time and didn't even have to wait. I was conducted through numerous small reception rooms to the Pope. He received me standing and held out his hand, which I did not kiss. Lepe had told me I had to do it, but I didn't. I believe that I incurred his displeasure by this, for everyone who visits him kneels down and at least kisses his hand. This hand kiss had caused me a lot of worry. I was quite glad when it was finally out of the way. He seated himself in an armchair, a throne for minor occasions. Then he invited me to sit down right next to him and smiled in friendly anticipation. I began, Ringrazio vostra santità per il favore di maver acquadrato questurienza. I thank you, Your Holiness, for the favor of according me this audience. And, uh, it is a pleasure, he said, with a kindly dep deprecation. I apologized for my miserable Italian, but he said, No, parla molto bene, signore commendatore. No, commander, you speak very well. For I had put on, for the first time, on Le Pay's advice, my Medjidie ribbon. Consequently, the Pope always addressed me as commendatore. He is a good, coarse-grained village priest to whom Christianity has remained a living thing even in the Vatican. I repeat the words of this man. Paisatenth uh, is a good, coarse-grained village priest to whom Christianity has remained a living thing even in the Vatican. 
I briefly placed my request before him. He, however, possibly annoyed by my refusal to kiss his hand, answered sternly and resolutely, No, he says, Non possiamo. Well, I, I won't read all the Italian, he says. The translation is, We cannot give approval to this movement. We cannot prevent the Jews from going to Jerusalem, but we could never sanction it. The soil of Jerusalem, if it was not always sacred, has been sanctified by the life of Jesus Christ. As the head of the church, I cannot tell you anything different. The Jews have not recognized our Lord, therefore we cannot recognize the Jewish people. Hence the conflict between Rome, represented by him, and Jerusalem, represented by me, was once again opened up. At the outset, to be sure, I tried to be conciliatory. I recited my little piece about extraterritorialization, res sacre extra commercium, that is, holy places are removed from business. The point being that if the Jews did take over Jerusalem, they would exempt the, you know, the Christian holy places. It didn't make much of an impression. Jerusalem, he said, must not get into the hands of the Jews. And its present status, Holy Father? I know it is not pleasant to see the Turks in possession of our holy places. We simply have to put up with that. But to support the Jews in the acquisition of the holy places, that we cannot do. I said that our point of departure had been solely the distress of the Jews, and that we desired to avoid the religious issues. Yes, but we, and I as the head of the church, cannot do this. There are two possibilities. Either the Jews will cling to their faith and continue to await the Messiah, who for us has already appeared. In that case, they will be denying the divinity of Jesus, and we cannot help them. Or else, they will go there without any religion, and then we can be even less favorable to them. The Jewish religion was the foundation of our own. I'd like to see that original, the original Italian for that expression. But it was superseded by the teachings of Christ. And we cannot concede it any further, any further validity. The Jews who ought to have been the first to acknowledge Jesus Christ have not done so to this day. It was on the tip of my tongue to say, that's what happens in every family. No one believes in his own relatives. But I said in, instead, terror and persecution may not have been the right means for enlightening the Jews. But he rejoined, and this time he was magnificent in his simplicity. Our Lord came without power. Ero, povero, he was poor. He came in pace, in peace. He persecuted no one. He was persecuted. He was abandonato, forsaken, even by his apostles. Only later did he grow in stature. It took three centuries for the church to evolve. Again, I'd like to see the original. The Jews, therefore, had time... I would say develop, really, probably, but I'll go back and listen. Sviluppo. The Jews, therefore, had time to acknowledge his divinity without any pressure, but they haven't done so to this day. But, Holy Father, the Jews are in terrible straits. I don't know if your holiness is acquainted with the full extent of this sad situation. We need a land for these persecuted people. <coughs> Does it have to be Jerusalem? 
Paisatensis. And does it have to be Jerusalem? And Herzl said, we are not asking for Jerusalem, but for Palestine, only the secular land. We cannot be in favor of it. Does your holiness know the situation of the Jews? Yes, from my Mantua days. He was Bishop of Mantua, you know, back in the uh, mid to late 1800s. Jews live there, and I have always been in good terms with Jews. Only the other evening, two Jews were here to see me. After all, there are other bonds than those of religion, courtesy, and philanthropy. These we do not deny to the Jews. Indeed, we also pray for them, that their minds may be enlightened. This very day, the church is celebrating the feast of an unbeliever who, on the road to Damascus, became miraculously converted to the true faith. And so if you come to Palestine and settle your people there, we shall have churches and priests ready to baptize all of you. That's what a Catholic Pope would say. Yes. <laughs> Count Lepay had had himself announced. The Pope permitted him to enter. Now, this is the arrival of uh, that Count Lepay who had organized this, arranged this audience. Anyway, I'll just say how he ends this. He says, in the uh, Raphael Stanze, the rooms of Raphael with all the paintings by the, the great painter Raphael, where I spent the next hour, I saw a picture of an emperor kneeling to let a seated pope put the crown on his head. This was the <coughs> probably the, the crowning. I, I, well, probably Charlemagne. Right? I mean, uh, wouldn't have been Napoleon because he snatched the crown and put it on his own head, right? But he ends by saying, that's the way Rome wants it. Like, okay, that's the way Rome wants it. That's the way it's going They're not going to support our efforts to take political control of Palestine. And then you go fast forward to John Paul II, who just does it joyfully, right? Yeah. Joyfully exceeds. The question of our Lord, who sanctified Jerusalem with his blood, that he is truly the Messiah, the true Messiah of which the true Jews awaited all those centuries, and they refused to recognize him. But Pius X, I think, was very, very clear in his understanding that this, uh, that the Jews taking over um, Palestine and Jerusalem would be a major turning point in the history of the world. He knew prophecies, and he knew persecution, and he knew the idea of waiting for a new Messiah, and he knew who that Messiah would be. He didn't mention in this interview, because I don't know that Theodore Herzl would have really understood it, or appreciated it in any way. But I think it's very clear what St. Pius X said, even what he didn't say. What he implied was that this is simply impossible for a vicar of Christ on earth to do, legitimately, and in good conscience. Um, the fact now that you have the Novus Ordo and all of its pontiffs basically kowtowing to this, basically, worshipfully, you know, almost bowing to Jerusalem as the Muslims formerly bowed to Jerusalem, now bowed to Mecca, right? As though this is uh, the future, you know. This is part of what they call dispensationalism. 
dispensationalism, the Protestant idea, and a very recent Protestant idea from the early, from the late 1800s and early 1900s, which actually burst upon the scene in the Schofield Bible. A man named Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield didn't originate this idea of dispensationalism, but he's the one who, uh, in his 1909 issue of his Bible with his commentaries. He's the one who brought forth this idea. And by the way, when, when you become a Protestant, uh, you, you almost, well, I mean, I don't want to insult um, artists, okay? But, you know, artists always have to come up with something new and different, right? Um, it's almost like philosophers. If if you're a philosopher and you just rehash what St. Thomas Aquinas said, well, you know, you're not breaking new ground. You're not really making a name for yourself. You may be a great Thomist, but you're not being original. And so to really break new ground and make a name for yourself, you have to be original. Well, when you become a Protestant, it's like you have to be original in your interpretation of scriptures and come up with something new and different, spiffy, and like, oh, wow, nobody saw this before. Like Luther himself, my goodness, the Christians had gotten lost all those years, and now Luther rediscovered the very essence of Christianity. Wow, you know, what a great pioneer, you know? And so Schofield was one of these who, now I'm going to comment on the Bible here, and um, I'm going to, uh, you know, break new ground by, by publicizing the idea that actually, if you go through Bible history, the Old Testament, the New Testament, you see that, it, that we're not talking about two covenants, like the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. No, 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 no. That's passé. No, no, now we're talking about dispensations. God had different dispensations. And these dispensations were like blocks of time where God said, okay, these are the rules that dominate this time. And salvation comes from basically following the rules that I lay down during these blocks of time. For example, the first block of time from um, Adam to Noah, okay? And you had the dispen that particular dispensation, okay? And after Noah, then you got you went into another phase, another another dispensation. The dispensationalists don't even agree on how many dispensations there were in the Old Testament going into the New. <coughs> they don't even necessarily recognize the necessarily the terminology. Um, some go up to eight dispensations, different dispensations, and um, some maybe as few as three. I think, uh, from what I've read, the standard, more or less, the most agree on seven dispensations. Blocks of time from, let's say, I'm, I'm trying to remember, <coughs> Adam, excuse me, Adam to Noah, maybe Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, and you had these different <coughs> arrangements of God as he was basically changing the rules. <coughs> For the people who lived in these different eras, see? And uh, now when you get to the church, the Christian church, that's not considered to be a dispensation. That's like something apart. That's sort of like a, 
an exception to the rule of all these dispensations. Like the dispensations were interrupted almost for the church. And the churches that are going to go through this history, maybe from Pentecost to the coming of the Antichrist, is going to, the church is going to go through our own history. And there will be, well, some of them say there will be a rapture uh, before the great chastisement. Uh, some say there isn't going to be one. Uh, again, you know, typical Protestants, they can't even agree among themselves about their heresies, you know, so. Um, but somehow, you know, the coming of Christ was an exceptional situation that was sort of out of the scheme of dispensation. The point, the, the, the whole point of this, though, with regard to Israel and taking over the, you know, Palestine, is that the Schofield Bible influenced the political life here in the United States of America very deeply. It was very, very powerful influence on the Protestants in this country, including Episcopalians. And there were a lot of politicians, Protestant politicians, who came into power in the United States of America, who were very much imbued with the idea that Israel has a special dispensation with God. And that special dispensation with God supersedes basically whatever else happens. And uh, Christ and Christianity and the church and so on, it doesn't affect in any way the special, unique relationship that God has with the people of Israel. And they have a right that God gave them to this land, and nobody can deny them. And they have the right to have some kind of a, a, uh, a kingdom of their own here, essentially, established, or a, a principality, um, political entity of their own, to that land by virtue of a dispensation that God made with them. Um, and um, so this is like something sacred, part of the divine plan. And even after the church basically is raptured and all the rest, it resumes and that Israel is back to taking control of, of that land that God had promised them, you see? So uh, it's still very much in effect. And oddly enough, with John Paul II, probably John the Twenty-Third, Paul the Sixth, John Paul the Second, Benedict himself, Sixteenth, and certainly with Francis, they're all dispensationalists. They all think, like Cyrus Ingersoll uh, uh, Schofield, they all have adopted this this dispensationalist view of Bible history considering it uh, sort of like a, a special calling of the Jews from God, uh, they have this, this deal that God made with them, a special dispensation. And um, whereas other dispensations may come and go, this one remains permanent, fixed, and it's our job to support it in every way. Uh, and if we don't, we're not living up to God's will. We've got to... We've got to uh, enshrine Jewish power in Palestine uh, in order to honor this special dispensation. Is it not what you hear? Is it not what you see in our, our own politicians? Is it not what you see even in the Vatican? Right? So the idea, I mean, look at Nostra Aetate, Vatican II, right? Special arrangement God has with the Jews apart from Jesus Christ. 
as though he's not really their savior, right? Not really, they can be saved without him. Or at least they can have their worldly kingdom without him. See, this is what St. Pius X was not, was not going to bend it to. He couldn't because of his belief in Christ. The only way he could bend is if he lost his grip on a real faith in Jesus Christ as the one true Son of the one true God and the true and unique Savior of mankind. <laughs> and if John Paul II was willing to go ahead with it, it's because he lost his grip. You know, he's a modernist. He's a modernist. No doubt about it. Um, so, uh, in any case, um, uh, I don't know if, if this actually addresses the question fully, but I, I think it does kind of speak to the question anyway. Yes, right? de definitely, Father. There, just, just one quick um, follow-up related question. Does this, um, you know, we did see the actual founding of the modern state of, of Israel. Does that, you min briefly mentioned prophecy. Is there any kind of specific biblical Prophecy that well, that, that the, the tradition was that when the Jews actually returned from the disaster, this, uh, diaspora and refound the Jewish state, that this was going to be a major step in the realization of the end-time prophecies. And uh, the idea, well, I think uh, Father Kramer expresses this about the Antichrist wanting to rule from the newly constituted Jerusalem. The Jews are very active in, at least some are anyway, are very active in wanting to rebuild the temple and re-inaugurate uh, their um, sacrifices there. And um, basically this is a step toward what they consider to be a world domination that is their right. A dispensation, as it were. And... Um, I remember one of our one of our priests long long ago expressed to me his amazement. He got into a taxi cab. This tells you how long ago it was in New York, and there was a Jewish taxi cab driver. Um, and he asked him to contribute to the recasting of the menorah for the temple, uh, for the, the worship in the new temple that was going to be constructed in Jerusalem, the rebuilt temple. Um, at that time, the, this young priest had no idea you know, <laughs> what the plans were. <clears throat> but not only that, I mean, years ago, maybe oh, 30, 40 years ago, I was reading the story of an American cattle rancher who was in Israel, um, trying to breed a red heifer. And uh, the red heifer, that is to say, a, a heifer that would have on its entire body uh, only two non-red hairs. And that's quite, quite something to breed that. But the idea was it had to be so pure, considered, uh, that it would be slaughtered, burned, and the ashes used to purify the Jews for the ritual purification so they could walk on the Temple Mount. Because of that holy ground, they could not walk there because of the ritual impurities. They had to be purified by this ceremony. And they wanted to um, breed the red heifer precisely for the sake of having this purification ceremony so they could actually walk in the Temple Mount where the temples had stood. And the story I read at the time was newsworthy because 
that said that they had actually succeeded in producing a red heifer that met the requirements. Never heard any more about it after that. But it's, uh, it's curious. I mean, they, they see this as uh, really from an apocalyptic and a messianic point of view, but the Messiah is not Jesus Christ. And that is why uh, a true Catholic Pope, St. Pius X, could not support it in any way. Um, again, you might say, well, well was, this not show, was this showing disrespect to this Theodore Herzl? I don't know how old he was. <laughs> uh, no, speaking the truth, out of wishing them well, is not disrespect at all. You know, and... Theodore Hensel didn't, you know, took it as disrespect. He didn't show the respect uh, himself. Um, but uh, you can be sure that St. Pius X spoke to him from the heart, really wanting his good. And when he said, we're praying for you, and we want to baptize you, and we want you to know your Savior, that he meant every word of it, from a great simplicity of his, uh, of his heart, pontifical heart, as it were. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, um, Father, I know you have a few uh, a few items in front of you there that you wanted to get to tonight. I don't know if you uh, wanted to well, save those for uh, for a later date. I think we can, Tom, okay. because okay. Uh, we got through a lot. You know, I've been uh, a little bit under the weather. As soon as uh, somebody says, uh, you know, uh, oh, I have a, a headache or you know, a split ends or whatever, it's COVID nineteen. <laughs> but uh, just a uh, mild head cold. So I thank you for breaking that. Um, yes, Father. Worth, worth the but risk. I thank the, uh, our listeners for breaking that too, because my voice is kind of grappling, I know. Um, but in any case, um, uh, there are many who are more ill than I, and those, I do reiterate the need for prayers for Father Bomberger and uh, Monsieur Saint Laurent and uh, uh, Mr. Raska and uh, Dr. Hofrichter and Mr. Gorey and so many other good souls who uh, will benefit from our prayers and also will pray for us and probably offer up some of their crosses for us and we'll probably derive more benefit uh, than we give uh, by that charity. So I do commend them to your prayers. Absolutely. Well, Father, we will uh, certainly keep you in our prayers as well. So thank you for everything. Uh, you're welcome, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.